think about it, like you leave your life, your present life, where you leave your family, you leave your job, you leave sleep, you come in the middle of the night, and you come in to this place and you wait. And maybe you might wait and wait and wait, depending upon <laughs> the conditions uh, and crowding. But then you're telling oftentimes really vulnerable and sharing very vulnerable information with a total stranger. And think about that, you know. And so I always caution, you know, residents and myself, I mean, because I'm always a work in progress, is that whenever I feel like saying, oh, the patient has nothing, they have something. They always have something. This is the Visible Voices Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about In the Right Direction. I'm Deb Elbaum, leadership and executive coach and host of the podcast, In the Right Direction. We explore strategies to help you think and communicate clearly and confidently so that you feel engaged and purposeful, both at work and in life. Hi, listeners. Thank you so much for joining Today, I'm in conversation with Dr. Jay Baruch. Jay is an emergency physician and a friend. He's a professor of emergency medicine at Brown University's Alpert Medical School. He has authored two award-winning short fiction collections, What's Left Out and 14 Stories, Doctors, Patients, and Other Strangers. Today, we're speaking about his latest book, which dropped in August 22, thanks to MIT Press. This is entitled Tornado of Life, A Doctor's Journey Through Constraints and Creativity in the ER. Now, Jay and I met through emergency medicine and through the narrative medicine, art, and the humanities of medicine communities. He has inspired me and encouraged me to write and to use my voice. Today, we're hearing Jay's voice. And in fact, when we begin, we're talking about patients as storytellers and we as emergency physicians as the editors of those stories. The patient is presenting us with the first draft, but we as the physicians are the editors of the story. Yeah, we, like, we deal with fragments, right? Like we create, like patients bring to us information, they bring us stories, and we create like this coherent narrative, but it might not come to us that way. And the idea of stories in medicine, at least from the patient's perspective, is that it it's not just being told about their illness. Like patients aren't just information with faces. Um, they're actually trying to get an understanding of an experience. It's not just what they have, but oftentimes it's what they lost. It's their fears for the future. Their relationship with the world has changed. Something has changed. The conditions for their storytelling um, is, um, is just as important as what they're saying. And so when we think about stories as first drafts, but oftentimes they're trying to figure out what's going on, even as they're telling you. They're trying to figure out what's important to them, what's relevant, um, as they're speaking to you. And uh, and we have to recognize that, not to diminish it in any way, but actually to ask questions and to realize that this might be there might be more information that's there um, for us to come back to later. And and also equally, not just what patients are telling us, but what is what is it they're not telling us that we need to be asking about. Yeah. And you aptly point out, I want to use the word aptly there, uh, that often they overshare or they're not sure what to tell us. So they want to tell us everything. It's sort of like a vomit. Like it's like information overload and they'll go and go and go, go. And so what I find sometimes is I'm actually choreographing the dance and the, the, 
the stream of information that's coming forth with questions or guidance or, you know, putting them on a track that I think is going to get us together where we need to be with getting the story that's going to help figure out what's bringing them to the emergency department and what's going to help them get a diagnosis, get a treatment, feel better, hopefully. Can we unpack that a little bit? Because that's so great. I love the, I love how you frame that. Uh, so a couple of things. So it's so true. Like sometimes they tell us nothing. And sometimes they tell us everything, right? And so what we have to recognize that we're making decisions uh, about what we consider relevant versus irrelevant information, which might not necessarily be what they're thinking, right? Because they haven't been to med- most of my patients, at least, haven't been to medical school. So they might not know what we need to be here and what, or what we're listening for. Um, and, and so we have to recognize that, you know, and not just in what they tell us, but the language they use, um, and, and how they describe things. So, I mean, how many times when we were younger, we were younger attendings, we're sitting there going, a patient, we asked if they had chest pain and they go, no. And then we later learned out they had chest pressure. We're like, don't they know we use chest pain? We mean pressure. We mean tightness. <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, and, um, and so, but we're editing, like we're making these editing decisions about what is important. So sometimes we're not just listening. Listening is actually construction. We're constructing a narrative, which is both wonderful when it works and tragic when it's not, right? Because if we're, cause if we're not, if we're not constructing the same story that the patient is telling, then that makes us predisposed to sort of not just medical error, but actually diminishing and perhaps disrespecting the people because we haven't really heard them. Yeah. I see it sometimes as a play and the patient is the narrator in, in their own play. Sometimes we're the narrator um, and there are supporting actors and people that are contributors, the caretakers, the moms, the partners, uh, the, the EKG tech that performed the EKG who to whom the patient told something, um, the nurse who took the vital signs at the triage desk and comes back and said, I'm worried about this person. There are a lot of supporting actors to this narrative, to this play. I love that. And, and what is so great is the fact that what you allude to is something that we oftentimes dis, don't think about as deeply. And that is the fact that the patient's presence alone in the emergency department is a narrative event. Like we take it for granted, like, oh, our next patient. But think about it. Like you leave your life, your present life, where you leave your family, you leave your job, you leave sleep, you come in the middle of the night and you come in to this place and you wait. And maybe you might wait and wait and wait, depending upon (laughs) the conditions uh, and crowding. But then you're telling oftentimes really vulnerable and sharing very vulnerable information with a total stranger. You know, think about that, you know, and so I always caution, you know, residents and myself, I mean, because I'm always a work in progress, is that whenever I feel like saying, oh, the patient has nothing, they have something. They always have something. It might not be what's awry, what, what, what drives story is, is trouble, is a plight, like what is going on, like what is troubling them? And it might be their body. It might be just their relationship with others and the impact, whatever they're going through is impacting them. It might be their, their sense of hope or what, or for the future. Um, it might be their identity, but it's something. Yeah. I love 
that, what you just shared. And that ties into one of the stories in the book. Uh, You're a young faculty member and a woman comes in and you're trying to figure out what's wrong with her. Can you share the details of that story with the audience? Yeah, she came in and it was, I was literally on my first year out of, out of residency in a, in a very busy inner city hospital. And how I describe it is that, you know, this woman was so put together. She was elegantly dressed. Um, she was the best dressed and the best smelling person in the entire ER. And that included all the staff. And, but she came in with sort of vague symptoms. And it was a, one of those like, what do you hear? You look so, and there was nothing vague about her. She looked so strong and so, like, I don't think there's anything, anything vague about her. And I, I couldn't get a, I couldn't get a footing in her story. And, uh, and, and somehow she, you know, the, I, the question about chest pain and shortness of breath emerged and I chased that. It was like, did I think that was it? But it was something to hold on to. I wasn't certain. And the workup went through the night and she didn't care. She's surrounded by intoxicated people yelling and screaming and, and, um, and she didn't care. She was grateful. And how I write in the, in the piece is that, you know, I was diligent and conscientious and entirely devoid of any imagination. I was so focused on what she might have. I wasn't focusing on why she's here. And the reason why she was here, she came, I learned in the morning when I was about to discharge her home, and she actually opened up to this, was the fact that she was basically the the victim of interpersonal violence. Um, It had been going on for years. Um, And um, and that that night, last night, um, she couldn't, she couldn't put up with it anymore. Beautiful story, credible, and something that all of us as emergency physicians see. Yeah, and I, and what I th- thought was so fascinating about that that situation is not just the fact that you know I found something that was recognizable and I responded to that. Um, and she was grateful. She was very, and she was very happy with everything that I did. But I missed the heart of her story. Um, but I, I wasn't alert to, um, to uncertainty and to use uncertainty, like uncertainty as my ally say, listen, there's something here. This, this feeling I have isn't, doesn't feel good because uncertainty has like an emotional, like for me, it feels like a little like an allergic reaction, a mild allergic reaction and, and to recognize that and, and to go back and say, Hey, you know, it's not. I have to ask different types of questions. I have to ask the why question. You know, I have to ask, be curious. Like when I'm on, when I'm facing uncertainty, there's time to sort of be curious. And of course, that also means being, recognizing the emotion, becoming more comfortable with that discomfort and being alert to what it might be signaling. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that this was something that happened uh, early on, just when you finished training speaks to the wisdom we gain over time. The more stories we see and hear are the more stories we see and hear. In the book, you describe three different narrative arcs, restitution stories, quest stories, and chaos stories. Can you share an example from the book of each kind? Yeah. So the, um, I don't, concern myself as much with the restitution stories, but I will explain, I'll explain what each of them are and give an example of each. And I will give, and I, I focus a lot on the chaos narratives. 
Um, and and just at the outset, like, this work is really based on um, draws on the, the scholarship of Arthur Frank, who wrote a, a really a seminal book called The Wounded Storyteller that came out in the 1990s. And uh, and it's really a brilliant book, and it kind of was like my gateway into sort of the health humanities. One of the few books that sort of opened me up to the connections between humanities scholarship and concepts and the care we take of patients, actual care of taking patients. And so, and he and, and Art says that like, these aren't like rigid characters; they're fluid; they blend into one another. And I and I think people will recognize this, and it's kind of important. Um, so the restitution narratives are like a standard cold commercial. You know, it's like the pervading paradigm in medicine, you know, which is like you're sick, you're well, and then you're sick. And because you're sick, you get pulled away from your job or some kind of life responsibility. But then you take the purple pill and the green pill or the yellow pill or whatever, and and then you become well again. And, of course, like the next scene is like you're kicking a soccer ball in the park, you know, with your dog, you know, something really good. So you're well, you're sick, and now you're well again. The focus is a lot on the treatment. The focus is on the treatment. What can we do for you? You know, and this is a lot of times the pervading paradigm in medicine. The question narrative draws from the work of Joseph Campbell, you know, the, the hero's journey, you know, for readers who are familiar with that. And and briefly, uh, uh, Arthur Frank talks about sort of illness as a journey. And, art, and he writes about his own experience as a cancer uh, patient, a cancer survivor. So like you're, you're well and then you get a diagnosis or you get symptoms, you get a diagnosis, you become sick. And then you get pushed off into land, this other land, this other place, land of the sick. And you take, sort of face this threshold in which you get, you meet trials and tribulations and experiences. And you get tested. And if you're lucky, you get to come back to the land of the well. But you're not the same person that you were than before you left. And oftentimes your experience itself is so hard to articulate, even to people who are closest to you. Um, and the focus is on the journey that you're that you're taking. Um, and sort of like illness as a journey. I feel like sometimes we meet patients like that in the ER, right? Like they might not say want an answer, but we're meeting them somewhere along that journey. We have to realize where they are on that journey and how they respond. And, and to sort of foster and and uh, consider our response to them. Then there are chaos narratives, which I think are the, uh, the most interesting and the most fun in what I write about in the book. And chaos narratives, if we think about narratives as experiences with order, um, there's a certain chronology, there's a certain causation to events, like chaos narratives blow those to smithereens. Um, and we sort of know those. Like it's like, and this happened, and that happened, and then, and then, and then. And in the book, I have a patient who came into the ER from the shelter um, that was brought in uh, by police. And she had a history of like substance use disorder and mental health disorder and the, and the death of a loved one um, that was uh, in, that recently happened and a, a gesture for suicide, um, self-harm. And unlike many of us, Risa, who maybe we, can, we have a, a floor, which sometimes we won't drop below, like so many of our patients don't have that. You know, and chaos is just defies that order. And oftentimes these experiences are so hard to put into words, no language for them. And the worst thing that we can do as physicians and why this is so critical 
is to try to take a chaos narrative and turn it into a restitution narrative, to provide an answer when there is none, to provide order when it when there is none. And the problem is that when we do that, we oftentimes are disregarding what the story is and we're, di- and we're disrespecting the storyteller. And what's so great about these stories as receivers is that our job is oftentimes just to recognize the patient and to let the patient talk and to acknowledge the struggles that they're going through. Uh, and I find that, I, and I, for me, for myself, when I was taking care of this particular patient, it was a really illuminating moment for me. Yeah. Thanks for that. Um, what came to mind for me was your quest story that you share is about your heart condition and some of your challenges with an irregular heartbeat, with passing out, vomiting, and just being out of control. Yeah, I I went from being <laughs> we think about our own the stories that we all can can sit you know, place ourselves in and and I was uh, you know for a large part of my life I thought I was healthier than my age until I. <laughs> Until my age caught up with me, and I ended up having, you know, uh, I passed out at work. I had a, a valve problem. I had atrial fib. I, I described I was collecting medical problems like loose coins, and uh, and it set me up on a journey for down a couple of years that were that were kind of challenging that I didn't really talk about with with many people. Um, and I was, and at some point I actually was in heart failure. Um, so I write about these experiences just of of one of just being a physician and. And people trying to turn my experience as a physician into like this fable, like this moral act. Like people wanted to know, like, are you going to become a better doctor as a result of this? Um, a more compassionate doctor, a more empathic doctor. And in some ways I, I did, which I write about. In some ways I did it. Like the reality was a little bit messy, um, with, like, which a lot of the stories in the, in the book really is about like how, how we're fraught with contradictions and messiness. And we have to recognize the messiness of medicine. And, um, and then, you know, the fact that, you know, as as patients, as a patient, I had this moment of realizing how scary the emergency department can be <laughs> when I was in a different emergency department. And I was like, how does anybody feel, feel cared for in this crazy place with all these beeping sounds, with all these people, this sort of this activity going on, all the announcements overhead? Um, and, uh, and that's what I discussed in the book. Yeah. I mean, just working in the emergency department is a chaos story. Uh, You and I have talked about um, the sounds, the yelling, uh, the expletives. Uh, One of your stories uh, uses the term Dr. Douchebag. Tell us more about that. Yeah, this was an early piece that I had written. And um, and it was about a... a (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but a patient who called me, you know, who basically uh, was a trauma patient who called me douchebag again and again and again. It wouldn't let us really care for him. And, um, and, and it, and it, it produced so many ugly feelings in me. Right. And so I, so the piece I ended up writing about was sort of an imagination of uh, imagining of what I would have liked to have done. Uh, if I could have, and that was like the role, like how we use narrative and our way of understanding um, actions, feelings, behaviors, and uh, and how writing about that experience uh, 
Well, it acknowledged everything that, that he had done and putting and saying, what if I did this? What if I just kicked him out? What if, what if I just tore the blood pressure cuff off him? We pulled the IV out and he was shot a cup, you know, he was shot and we just let him go. Uh, and, and that process of sort of going to those ugly places had the paradoxical effect of, 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 of providing opportunities for me to have more empathy for this person who on the page, who was this patient. Um, and, uh, and I wanted to, and, and I wanted to explore those dark feelings that oftentimes we suppress and we say, no, we shouldn't, you shouldn't think that way, but we do think that way. So what if we did think that way and we did do what we did? Would we feel any better? I didn't feel any better, but I had more empathy, um, uh, because of the process of working through those, those little uglier, uh, unseemly sides of ourselves. Yeah. When we share these stories with uh, non-medical friends, family members, um, in my experience, they're often shocked, like shocked that we are called a name such as a douchebag. Uh, I recently was told that I was an asshole. Um, and in the moment, I actually identified with the story because we go through full circle. We actually work everything out in our mind in that moment, in that scene in the emergency department of being called that name. Should I do this? Should I do that? What if I do this? What if I do that? And I find I come out the other end each time. No countertransference, no raising my voice, no calling the person a name back. Calm, open, listening, and focusing on the fact that I need to take care of this patient in front of me. You're so more emotionally evolved than I am um, <laughs> because I have to tell you that there are times that I, that I'm exactly that. Like there are times like that, but there are times that I just like, I've had enough, right? Like think about it, race, like what we do, like our sense of normal is so abnormal. It's so abnormal. Like what we, I was saying this to our nurses, like what we deal, what we take on a daily basis is so abnormal. Not just in, abnormal in the sense of like the intensity of the experiences that we're confronting, the amount of suffering that we confront on a daily basis, um, the challenges that our communities are facing on a daily basis. Um, like, like there's no, there's no rose colored glasses in what we do. We see, like, we see policy, the ugly part of policy. We see it every day in the faces of our patients. However, we also have a moral obligation for our patients. So not just the fact that if, if you, if someone on the street sort of started cursing you out, like you wouldn't take kindly to that, right? Cause we had no moral obligation to them. And, but we have a more, not only do we have to absorb oftentimes what we put up with, but we're still obligated to help them, um, which takes, I, I think, a lot of sort of moral flexibility and forces us into some ugly emotional places that I think we have to recognize. Like we have to acknowledge the fact that this is incredibly hard, like working our gym or it's a, a sense of emotional and cognitive gymnastics that I think we have to recognize how hard that is. And how do we prepare our, our residents or, you know, our medical students, the fact that this is part of what medicine is about. And, um, and we need to sort of recognize that it's hard and how can we prepare them, prepare them to sort of do this type of sort of emotional, moral, cognitive work. Yeah. Relatedly, you and I have spoken about um, abuse, uh, harassment, verbal, 
physical in the emergency department. And we as healthcare workers sustain a lot, are exposed to a lot, and navigate a lot. And you had shared that uh, on a recent shift, uh, there were people crying, healthcare workers crying because of the treatment they were receiving or the helplessness they felt. And we did an episode on the Visible Voices podcast specifically on um, the abuse of healthcare workers and how nurses are at high, high risk, high percentage in, in nursing, physicians as well. And, you know, if you're a smaller person or if you're a woman, if you are a person of color, you are more at risk for getting, uh, receiving, being abused. Yeah, I, I, I know. It's, it's so awful. And, uh, and what I find is that, uh, that oftentimes the, most troubling to let's say our nursing colleagues, for example, is not just the fact that they they get they're they're exposed to such abuse and such disrespect, um, but higher powers and institutional forces don't really respond to that or acknowledge that in a way that is meaningful to them. Like they might like these people and these forces might think that they're responding in an appropriate way, um, but. Uh, but it's not. And then when oftentimes we call law enforcement or bring law enforcement involved, oftentimes they sometimes disregard this, these types of behaviors. Like, ah, you know, that's just so-and-so. Um, and, and that has to stop. Like, I, I feel like we're probably in a place now when, we, when there's more and more reports about, uh, about this type of treatment for uh, nurses against women, against marginalized populations. I mean, when our security guards get called, um, blows my mind. Like I'm sitting there going, oh my God, who says, who says that um, to, to people, like to anybody? Um, and uh, we have to, like we have to, at some point, I think we're going to have to sort of be a little bit more um, rigid and put a line in the sand about what we're willing to put up with and what we're not going to be willing to put up with to care for all patients. Yeah. The sights, the smells, the sounds, the abuse, the the expletives, the crowding, uh, there are a lot of reasons to leave emergency medicine. And in fact, uh, outside of the book, you recently had a piece in Stat News entitled, Trying to Quit My Job as an ER Doctor Gave Me Reasons to Stay. Yeah, I know. I know when you talk about it, you talk about it in that way. Well, I'm like, well, I'm, I was sort of chuckling, and I go, yeah, but that's like home. Like that's like so, like so much of the challenges that we face, we knew going in, right? Like we know, like we know. <laughs> part of it is part of just the the excitement and the purpose and the mission of what we do. Like we know, in order to do the really important work, we got to put up with some challenging experiences and so then you reach a point and as i wrote this this piece and um and what happened was i i you know once i once i wrote my my resignation which i thought was going to be like an exercise see how i feel like i was crying like i was really i was surprised by the tears and 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 what i was doing what i was experiencing at that time was something that i've learned that a lot of people are experiencing because they shared that with me after my piece came out was like sitting in the car like sitting in the car before you go into the ship saying, how am I going to get out of the car? Like, how am I going to get out of the car? And so what happened after I wrote that, wrote that piece, wrote that letter was 
I started looking at the medicine a little bit differently. You know, I, I was so consumed with all the negative stuff that was going on that I started like seeing some of the some of the really important moments of connection and meaning. Um, and they were there all along, but I just was not noticing it because the other stuff was just every, <laughs> everywhere. Um, but but more importantly, um, you sort of I I realized that it's that some of the moments that are most meaningful are also oftentimes tied into those greatest challenges. Um, and that sometimes you can't extricate the two. And so how do we create that distance that allows us to sort of see both and recognize the messiness of it all and hopefully try to you know, muster up enough courage to come back the next day? One of the illustrative stories, I wanted to use that word illustrative stories that maybe demonstrates this to the audience is the one entitled hug or ug yeah i <laughs> this is this is about a uh a woman who was the substance use issues who was homeless she was had um some significant mental health problems who um uh as soon as i walked into the room she she wanted a hug and uh, like before, I just jumped her off the stretcher. Like she was all jumpy and a little bit hyperactive and a little bit manic. And she goes, "What a hug!" <laughs> and I uh, and I sat there and I was like, "Okay." And, and I've hugged before, and and we hugged. Well, she hugged, like I say in the piece, she hugged me, um, and I sort of hugged along. And um, but then I started questioning, like, why did I why did I hug her? Um, and um, and was it the right thing? And then she started like, did it? convey certain expectations and my obligations to her that perhaps weren't intended to interpret the hug in a way that perhaps was different. And then I learned, you know, afterwards, like my colleagues were appalled that I hugged her and they're like, Oh yeah, we were, we, she wanted us, she asked us for a hug too. And initially and I go, what? Cause initially I thought that maybe it was something about me and my <laughs> compassion and empathy that made, and she was, she was asking everyone for a hug. And then I was like, wait a minute, she's asking everyone for a hug. But but it is interesting, though, because like patients come in and we don't, they request a lot of things, but and, and oftentimes we don't give them. Like, listen, we don't need antibiotics for this viral infection. Yes, I know your your stomach hurts and I know you might have gallstones, but no, we, we can't offer you a, a gallbladder. Your gallbladder doesn't have to come out now. Um, but a hug doesn't feel like medical treatment, right? It feels like something innately human. And, and even if I wasn't, totally excited about giving her a hug. Um, what does it mean if I don't? What does it mean if I say no? Um, and how I write and I write in the piece that, you know, a hug, you know, a hug is like about, it's like a promise in a way. And, uh, and I tried to sort of unpack the reasons why I hugged them, the role of connection, especially in the, in the time of COVID when people were craving human contact through all the shields and, and the, um, and the PPE, and uh, and it was it was really fun trying to try to try to take this action and this behavior, and try to uncover all the good reasons why we hug and the value of hugging, um, and also the different ways that it can go astray on us and betray intentions that perhaps weren't intended. So much of what we do in emergency medicine, in medicine as a whole, but especially in emergency medicine, is there aren't often, oftentimes we're not, we're not presented with clear answers, right? Like the algorithm, like 
we can have all the algorithms in the world, but for most of the encounters that we that we face, uh, they're they're outside any algorithm. They're outside of any evidence based practice, um, and it's like jazz, like it's an improvisation. And and we have to be able to sort of have those skills and at least those critical thinking skills to think through these types of experiences, you know, which is, you know, what you do so well, you know, in your in this podcast. All the stories spoke to me. I, I speak the language. And I wondered if this spoke to people that were not emergency medicine workers and people who are outside medicine. And what has the response been from audience outside those worlds? Surprisingly, um, most of the responses I've had is from people outside of medicine. So I wrote the book for the public. It's a lay public. It's a trade book. Um, and I wrote it for the I wrote it for the public. I wanted to, you know, the public appetite, Risa, of course, you know, exposure to emergency medicine is oftentimes what's what's portrayed in the media, in the, media, in the movies and television shows, quote-unquote reality shows, um, which is oftentimes this high-wattage drama, like those heavy bass drum moments, um, which is, of course, part of our part of our practice but it's 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 not a, it's not really the stuff that at least i find most dramatic and most troubling and more common in my practice at least which is listening to patients with their complicated stories and how do i get to the heart of a patient's story and, and all the troubles that people come in and so most of the most of the reception most of the interviews that i've done have actually come outside of medicine from people from different walks of life um, who 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 managed to really connect um, with with the book, and I think what they connected to is that they can see themselves in some of the stories. Um, they also didn't realize that emergency, like what we as emergency physicians, as physicians, um, some of the challenges that we face, and all the different reasons why someone comes into the emergency department. Uh, and so it really sort of uh, seems it seems to have lifted a curtain. For a, a large for a population, for a lot, it resonated and resonated with a lot of people. Um, that uh, and in one of the places it actually has not picked up as much as I thought it would is actually within the house of medicine, and I and I think it's because it's I deal with the messiness and I'm not coming up with sort of clear answers. It's not like this is the checklist of things that you need to do, um, and uh, and I'm totally you know I, I hope it I hope it picks up. In, in, in the house of medicine, but I'm 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 really satisfied and excited that it, is, it has connected with 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 our community, with the people that that we care for. What a treat to have Jay join me in conversation! Thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Jay. I read this book not just once but twice, and in doing so, I was able to cull pull a few themes. And you heard about some of these themes in our conversation. I noticed that Jay confessed. I noticed that this was a bit of a catharsis. And I noticed his commitment to storytelling. These stories, yes, they're emergency medicine. Yes, they're the emergency department. But the themes are universal. The themes touch our heart. They touch our brains. They move us. They make us laugh. They make us cry. They make us feel. And more so, they make us stay human. That's it for this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare equity and current trends. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. You can listen on whatever platform you subscribe to podcasts. 
Our team includes Stacey Gitlin and Dr. Giuliano DePorto. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, please contact me, Risa at thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. I'm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I'm on Twitter at Risa E. Lewis. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, to be continued.